And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. I want for Christmas is for Francis to shut up for a while. I'm serious. I can't take it anymore. It's too much. So that's my Christmas wish. Look, I know I'm asking a lot. I know. But you can always hope, right? Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Tratcast number 16. Glad you tuned in again. I know you had to wait for a long time to get a new episode, and you can thank Frank for that. Lots going on, lots to cover. We are jam-packed with interesting information in this show, so let's get right to it. Where to start? Oh my. Well, first let me say that this show is not dedicated to just one particular topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about all sorts of things today, so if you're not particularly interested in one thing, just stick around because we'll get to something else uh, just a few moments later, all right? Oh yeah, and then I need to let you know that there will be an exciting announcement at the end of this show about how I intend to put an end to this recurring Tradcast dry spell that we've all been suffering through. And uh, I think it's a solution that uh, most of you will really like. So make sure you listen to the full show here today, all the way to the end, okay? Not that you wouldn't anyway, but just saying, all right? So anyway, let's get started here. Whoa. See, I'm already knocking things over. That's how excited I am. Well, uh, first, let me say something about the general election that took place here in the United States on November 8th. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to get into politics here. Um, I actually want to say something about Francis because he was asked about whom American Catholics should vote for in that election, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And uh, this happened on his return flight from Azerbaijan on October 2nd, when he gave yet another one of those uh, infamous press conferences. So what was his answer? Well, after making clear that he wouldn't comment on a specific electoral campaign, he said this, quote, Study the proposals well, pray, and choose in conscience, unquote. Now, this is a typical garbage answer from Jorge Bergoglio here, because think about it. Just what did he tell you that you didn't already know before? 
I mean, what sort of papal advice is this? Vote your conscience? Well, doesn't everybody do that? I mean, isn't the whole point why someone would want to ask the Pope what to do precisely because he wants to form his conscience? So what kind of a dumb answer is this? Vote your conscience. Well, gee, no kidding. You know, I was going to go into the voting booth and vote against my conscience. Well, I just wanted to bring this up because when I heard that, I knew it had to be addressed. It's a typical BS answer from a modernist because it answers nothing at all, really, and it ultimately just means do whatever you want under the cover of conscience, of course. But you know what? Conscience is not supreme, never has been. The church exists, among other things, to form our conscience, because conscience is nothing more than the application of the moral law in a given circumstance. It's not God's infallible voice inside oneself. Here, let me give you the definition of conscience according to Catholic moral theology. Quote, Conscience is an act of judgment on the part of the practical reason deciding by inference from general principles the moral goodness or malice of a particular act, unquote. And that definition comes from Father McHugh and Father Callan's work, Moral Theology, number 575, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes as we do for anything mentioned uh, on this program. Our show notes at tradcast.org. Look for episode number 16. So basically, Francis was asked, hey, what is a Catholic supposed to do in this case? Who are we supposed to vote for, right? And the Holy Father answered, oh, do whatever you think is best. Well, that's brilliant. That's why someone would want to ask the Pope for advice, right? To be told to just do whatever he thinks is best. That's awesome. I'm telling you, for someone who has nothing to say, Francis sure talks a lot. Pope Francis talks like a pope, like the successor to St. Peter. Oh, look, Michael Voris, just go away. Now, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't say something about the ongoing kerfuffle over Francis's exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. When this thing came out in April of this year, we put together a page in our blog called Amoris Letizia Chaos Watch, because we figured it was going to be exactly that, chaos. And boy, were we right. Now, I'm going to assume that you've been following more or less the news on that, and if you need a refresher, just go to our website at novusordowatch.org. That's novus with, an, with a U, N-O-V-U-S-O-R-D-O-W-A-T-C-H dot org. And in the menu bar at the top, click on the issues and then click on Amoris Letizia Chaos Watch. And that will pull up all the information you need on this. The most recent stories are uh, at the very bottom, so you'll have to scroll down to see those. Also, a few months ago, we did a long Tratcast specifically on Amoris Letizia. That was Tratcast episode 13, and uh, you can listen to that as well on there. And of course, we're also linking the Chaos Watch page in our show notes for this episode, so you can just click on that and it'll, it'll take you right there. So, in a nutshell... 
we might very well be witnessing the beginnings of a formal schism in the Novus Ordo Church over this, okay, over this whole Amoris Laetitia thing. Raymond Burke and three other Novus Ordo cardinals had sent Francis five direct questions that they wanted him to answer yes or no on in order to clarify what the teaching of Amoris Laetitia is. And they did it brilliantly. They did it in such a way that no matter which way he answers, he has no choice but to either explicitly admit that his teaching is new and heretical or else that he's not changing anything and the whole hullabaloo about the exhortation is unjustified. Now, if there's one thing that Francis doesn't like, it's being cornered. He doesn't appreciate it when others call his bluff. Okay, so of course he decided not to answer at all, and he even instructed Cardinal Muller at the CDF not to answer those questions either. But it seems like uh, Burke and company are not going away. They're pushing for an answer and uh, have already now held a conference in Rome, only three miles from the Vatican, denouncing the heresies in Amoris Laetitia. Because, look, we all know that this official request for clarification that they submitted to Francis isn't really a request for clarification at all. I mean, sure, officially it is, but there is nothing left to clarify. It's basically just a very diplomatic and shrewd way of telling him he's wrong and contradicting the perennial doctrine and practice of the church. Which brings us to a curious thing. Cardinal Burke and his buddies and all those in the Novus Ordo that are supporting him in this whole effort to get Francis to retract his outrageous heresies and errors on holy matrimony and the reception of Holy Communion, all these people keep pointing to John Paul II as the great hero and defender of Catholic faith and morals whom Francis is now supposedly contradicting. Well, apparently these people have forgotten that Back in 1983, John Paul II officially changed ecclesiastical law to allow so-called non-Catholic Christians, meaning Eastern Orthodox and or Protestants, to receive the Novus Ordo sacraments under certain restrictive conditions. I'm not kidding. John Paul II did this by promulgating the Novus Ordo Code of Canon Law on January 25th, 1983. Canon 844, paragraphs 3 and 4, says the following, quote, Catholic ministers administer the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick licitly, to members of Eastern churches which do not have full communion with the Catholic Church if they seek such on their own accord and are properly disposed. This is also valid for members of other churches which, in the judgment of the Apostolic See, are in the same condition in regard to the sacraments as these Eastern churches. If the danger of death is present or... If, in the judgment of the diocesan bishop or conference of bishops, some other grave necessity urges it, Catholic ministers administer these same sacraments licitly 
also to other Christians not having full communion with the Catholic Church who cannot approach a minister of their own community and who seek such on their own accord, provided that they manifest Catholic faith in respect to these sacraments and are properly disposed. Unquote. Now, as Bishop Donald Sanborn said in a recent episode of Francis Watch on truerestoration.org, this is even worse than admitting unrepentant adulterers who are Catholic to the sacraments because heretics don't even profess the same religion as Catholics. Well, Noel Sordo in this case, but you get the point. So, what John Paul II did in 1983 is even worse than what Francis has done now in 2016. Where were all those people? Raymond Burke, Walter Brandmuller, uh, Carlo Caffera, Joachim Meisner, Athanasius Schneider, and all of them. Where were those people when John Paul II did what is an even greater affront to Almighty God? Or could it be that if it doesn't involve some sin against the Sixth Commandment, then our heroes of orthodoxy don't think that it's that big of a deal? We've published a lengthy blog post explaining the details on this and also answering some objections that are typically made by people who want to exonerate John Paul II here. Um, the post is entitled, Hey, dubious supporters, where were you when John Paul II allowed Protestants to receive communion? And uh, it's linked in our show notes. So if you want details on this whole thing, uh, I'd like to encourage you to go there. So this is just mind-boggling. But it goes to show that we were entirely right by uh, saying a few years back that this developing intra novus ordo schism would be the ultimate deception because it won't be a split between the Catholic Church and the Novus Ordo Church, between Pius XII and his predecessors and the false Novus Ordo popes, but it will be a split between the pre-Francis Novus Ordo Church on the one hand and Francis and the post-Francis Church on the other. So, those who refuse to go along with Francis will nevertheless remain attached to the pre-Francis modernist church. And this is the devil's ultimate trick, because these conservatives will think themselves to have escaped Francis' deception, and yet they will also still be stuck in the false modernist church, just in the conservative wing. If you're interested in hearing more about all this, Check the show notes for a link to our post, Amoris Letizia and the Coming Schism, Retrospect and Prospect, which we published on May 2nd of this year, discussing uh, the fallout from the exhortation. Now, speaking of fallout from Amoris Letizia, folks, the dumbest post of the year award goes to Steve Kellmeyer. Hands down. If you don't know who he is, he's the theological product of the Novus Ordo sect's EWTN slash Catholic Answers slash Steubenville wing. And it shows. I'm not entirely sure, but I, I think he's from the same mold as people like Dave Armstrong and Mark Shea. Actually, I'm surprised he's not blogging at Patheos yet. He'd be perfect for that. But he is a blogger and a speaker and an author. The name of his blog is uh, 
actually very appropriate. It's called the fifth column. I'm not kidding, okay? The fifth column is the name of his blog. Anyway, on November 30th, he published a post entitled, Why Cardinal Burke Plays the Jackass. And uh, in this post, he actually argues that Francis is entirely right in allowing the divorced and remarried to receive communion in specific circumstances, even without an annulment, because, make sure you're seated, because, well, this is his explanation. Just because the church refused you a marriage annulment and you went ahead and, quote-unquote, married a second time anyway, doesn't have to mean you're in adultery. After all, the marriage tribunal could have been wrong in its decision, right? Maybe the tribunal was simply wrong in refusing to grant you an annulment. <laughs> yeah, except uh, he's actually serious, okay? I could not believe what I was reading. When I read this, I thought this has got to be the dumbest thing I've seen since Vatican II, obviously, but Anyway, here is what Kellmeyer actually says verbatim. Quote, The individual declaration of whether or not a marriage is valid is a judicial, that is, disciplinary declaration. It is not doctrinal. That means it is not an infallible declaration. Marriage tribunals can be, and probably are, frequently in error in their judgments about a marriage's validity. Unquote. Now, let me jump in right here for a moment and add my own comments. Let's assume for a minute that the Novus Ordo sect were the Catholic Church and its tribunals were indeed valid marriage tribunals of the church founded by Jesus Christ. Then, yes, it would be possible, possible, for a marriage tribunal to render an incorrect judgment because marriage tribunals are indeed not infallible. But so what? If the marriage tribunal can get it wrong, well, so can the spouses that are petitioning for an annulment. And in the case of the spouses themselves, of course, there is what we call a conflict of interest. Okay, So if we want to consider who's more likely to get it wrong, the spouse who is directly affected by the decision or the marriage tribunal that has no stake in the matter, gee, I wonder. Okay. Anyway, Kalmeyer continues, quote, Anyone who is not in a state of mortal sin has a right to the Eucharist. Given that marriage tribunals can be wrong in either direction, we cannot have absolute certainty that any particular marriage situation actually is adulterous. Unquote. That is correct, but again, irrelevant for the reasons I just gave. Furthermore, we don't need absolute certainty in the matter anyway, we only need what's called moral certitude, okay, which is the only type of certitude that you can have in a case like this. And in the case of doubt, the presumption is in favor of the validity of the first marriage. Kellmeyer completely ignores the presumption of validity, which is a presumption of law. When two people exchange marital consent the presumption must be in favor of validity. Otherwise, you'd have chaos. Kalmeyer further. 
Quote, if a priest denies Eucharist to someone who actually has a right to Eucharist because they actually aren't in an adulterous situation, even though someone else thinks they are, then the priest has sinned against them. Unquote. Now, that's just hysterical, okay? The priest most certainly doesn't sin by refusing Holy Communion to someone who, by the judgment of ecclesiastical authority, is publicly living in adultery. Now, to neutralize this, though, Kellmeyer brazenly reduces the official judgment of the competent ecclesiastical authority to nothing more than what someone else thinks. No, Steve Kellmeyer, this isn't what someone else thinks. It's the authoritative judgment of the Church of Jesus Christ. Not infallible in this instance, that's true, but nonetheless authoritative and binding. What does Kellmeyer put against that? The personal opinion of the spouses. Talk about what someone thinks. Well, he's not done yet. The comedy show continues, quote, Thus, while the theoretical answer is clear, the practical answer in any particular situation is anything but clear. This is why the four bishops' question is stupid. The four bishops, he, he's talking about the, um, the uh, four uh, noble sort of cardinals who uh, submitted the uh, dubia to Francis. The four bishops know full well both parts of this answer, and they know the Pope knows both parts of this answer. But the bishops have phrased it so as to only stress the theoretical answer when knowledge is certain. In practice, we never actually have that certainty. The Pope's commentary to date has stressed the practical problem. How do we handle the situation with the couple sitting in chairs in front of us when we don't actually know what state their situation is in and we cannot, even in principle, actually ever really know? Unquote. Again, I have to interrupt here. This is unbelievable. So Kalmeyer is now saying that we can never really know who is married and to whom, ever. But if that were the case, then he's just shot himself in the foot, because then that means that no one knows, including the spouses, at any point. And so we have a complete mingling, then, of holy matrimonial chastity, fornication, and adultery, all in one, all being more or less the same, since no one can really know, right? Which, I guess, is pretty much, is pretty much what Francis is actually proposing, so I guess Kelmeyer is right on that score. Oh, by the way, to say that the nullity of a marriage can be determined by private individuals as opposed to official church tribunals is heresy, heresy against the Council of Trent. On November 11, 1563, the Tridentine Council declared the following, quote, If anyone says that matrimonial causes do not belong to ecclesiastical judges, let him be anathema, unquote. That's Council of Trent, Session 24, Canon 12. Chew on that for a minute, Mr. Kellmeyer. All right, he continues, quote, But the Cardinal's question is not about the practical, it is about the theoretical. The question, as posed, is a crap question, unquote. Actually, no, Steve, yours is a crap answer. That's what's going on here. 
Anyway, we'll, we'll stop it here. You can uh, read the entire post if you like. We've got it linked in the show notes, but this is pretty much the, the essence of his argument. And at this point, you're probably asking yourself, just who in the world is this guy? Well, if you want to find out more information, you can go to his website, stevekelmeyer.com. That's Steve Kellmeyer, K-E-L-L-M-E-Y-E-R.com. He has a Master of Arts degree in theology from the Franciscan University of Steubenville. That explains a lot already. Uh, with specialization in catechetics. Boy, the, the Novels Horror Church is in bad shape, folks, if, if, if people like that are the catechists. My goodness. And yes, you know, this, this, this guy, Steve Kelmar, he's considered part of the conservative orthodox wing of the Novels Horror Church. According to his website, he, he writes for such publications as This Rock Magazine, which is now uh, called Catholic Answers Magazine, The New Oxford Review, National Catholic Register, Envoy, Lay Witness, The Catholic Answer, Homiletics and Pastoral Review, um, Social Justice Review, and uh, Celebrate Life Magazine. And uh, he is also the author of a number of books, and one of them is entitled, get this, Sex and the Sacred City, Meditations on the Theology of the Body. And uh, it's got the endorsement of Dr. Peter Kreeft from Boston College. Man, oh man. That explains a lot. Peter Kreeft. Um, don't know how much you know about him, but... Um, Peter Kreeft believes that there will be sex in heaven. No, seriously, you can't make this stuff up. Um, we, yes, he has an article on it, and we'll link it in our show notes if you don't believe it. It's nauseating. Uh, and it, honestly, the article uh, on that even has an indecent picture uh, on its page, so don't click on it, but we'll put the link anyway, um, just because, I mean, I have to prove that I'm not lying to you, okay? So... It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what the conservative orthodox wing of the new church comes up with. It's, it, it really is. So, well, we can thank uh, John Paul II's phenomenology for that. Sex in heaven. You've got to be kidding. It, it's, it's a theological freak show, the Novels Order Church. That's what it is. All right, let's move on from Mr. Kellmeyer. Uh, we do, unfortunately, still need to stay on the topic of Amoris Laetitia and the Dubia a bit longer. Uh, but we're going to make it a bit more fun now because now we'll listen to a few sound bites from a program produced by that bastion of traditional Catholicism known as The Remnant. Uh, the Remnant Underground is hosted by Michael Matt, who is the editor of The Remnant, and uh, we're going to be going through episode 11. And uh, what we'll do is we'll just play a soundbite, and then I'm going to comment on it, and then we'll go back and play some more, and I'll comment some more, and so on. So we'll start at the 15-second mark. Here's Michael Matt. The Vatican, I think it can fairly be said, is no longer, obviously at least, under the charge of those who are practicing Catholics. Well, actually, Mr. Matt, not only are they not practicing Catholics any longer, they are non-Catholics, and you know it. Let's fast forward to 10 minutes and 19 seconds in the program. Because now we have massive contradictions between what the Church taught a few years ago 
and what the church is teaching now. And the church cannot contradict herself. One of them has to be wrong because they're in direct contradiction with each other, old church versus new. Yep, the Catholic Church cannot contradict herself, but Michael Matt sure can because he just did. Did you catch that? Here in the same breath, he is saying that the church of today is contradicting the church of yesterday and that the church cannot contradict herself. I mean, really? What does it take? If the Catholic Church cannot contradict herself and the Novus Order Church does contradict the church before Vatican II, then guess what? The Novus Ordo Church cannot be the Catholic Church. That is a conclusion that follows necessarily. You can't get around it. But these people, in their blind and senseless, willful, a priori rejection of sedevacantism as even a possibility, do not care if they involve themselves in the most blatant contradictions as long as they can continue their position of have your pope and beat him too. This is just not rational. Now look, I'm, I'm very well aware that there are difficulties with the sedevacantist position. Okay? meaning there are a, a number of unanswered questions and um, various conclusions that may be difficult to accept, but what we don't have is contradiction. We have mystery, not contradiction. See, mystery is compatible with the Catholic faith. Contradiction is not. But these guys, Michael Madd and company, they would much rather have their resistance position with contradictions than Sedevacantist mystery. And sorry to say, but reason does not prevail here. And that's also why I really don't have any sympathy for them anymore. They keep whining and moaning about how horrible everything is, but they know better, or they could know better if they really wanted to. They're part of the problem because by continuing to recognize a public apostate as the Pope of the Catholic Church, while at the same time denouncing him for his public apostasy, they are themselves undermining the papacy and doing incredible damage to Catholic orthodoxy. We'll get to more examples of that later, but in the meantime, let me just quote to you Pope Leo XIII to illustrate what he thought of this whole resistance business. Quote, It is to give proof of a submission which is far from sincere to set up some kind of opposition between one pontiff and another. Those who, faced with two differing directives, reject the present one to hold to the past are not giving proof of obedience to the authority which has the right and duty to guide them. And in some ways, they resemble those who, on receiving a condemnation, would wish to appeal to a future council or to a pope who is better informed. Unquote. Bam! Yes, thank you, Michael Voris. This was Pope Leo XIII, Apostolic Letter Epistolatua, to the Archbishop of Paris, June 17, 1885. We've got a link to the full document in our show notes. Let's get back to the remnant underground. Here is more from Michael Matt. We're now at the 10 minute, 34 second mark. People say, yeah, but you know, he who eats of the Pope dies of the Pope. Mange Papa, morte Papa. Or Rome has spoken, the matter is settled. Roma, what is it? Roma locuta est, causa finita est. But all of these things presuppose that the Pope was defending the faith. 
You can't criticize the Pope who's defending the faith for any reason. To question him, to resist him, was to imperil your soul when there was sanity still in the Vatican. But when the Pope undermines the faith, then what? Rome has spoken now, so we're supposed to be silent? Well, this can't be right. Well, what can't be right here is your position, Mr. Matt, because it's obviously maneuvered you into an impossible situation. What Matt is doing here is he's reducing the Pope to the status of glorified Protestant pastor, because Matt is essentially saying that the Pope has no more authority than the Protestant pastor does, who only has to be followed for as long as he's right. Well, gee, which heretic in church history couldn't affirm as much? The Pope is always wrong when he disagrees with your position, right? Because your position is the correct one, the true one, the traditional one, right? Well, the point here being that the Pope's authority would be entirely chimerical if it were subject to each individual believer's decision on whether the teaching of the Holy See is correct or not. In that case, who needs the Holy See? What's the point of a teaching authority if ultimately it has no authority or it is no authority? Now, there is a lot to be said on this topic. And, uh, you know, if we got into all that here now, we'd never finish. So let me point you to a good summary of how the church's magisterial authority works, okay? It's found in the essay, Must I Believe It?, by Canon George Smith from the 1930s. All right, so we'll put that in our show notes. The bottom line is this. If we're going to be traditional Catholics, we need to go by what the church has traditionally taught, And that includes the traditional teaching about papal and magisterial authority. If you don't adhere to that, you're not a traditional Catholic, by definition. Now listen to what Michael Matt says next. We're at the 11 minute, 31 second mark. If the Pope, argues the great theologian Francis de Victoria, if the Pope wanted to destroy the church, he should not be permitted to act in that fashion but one would be obliged to resist him. The reason for this is that he does not possess power in order to destroy. Therefore, if there is evidence that he is doing so, it is lawful to resist him. The result of all this is that if the Pope, the Pope, I stopped the, the, the quotation here to remind you, he's talking about a sitting pontiff, the Pope, not an anti-Pope, the Pope, The result of all this is that if the Pope destroys the church by his orders and acts, he can be resisted and the execution of his mandates prevented, end quote. Again, he's talking about the Pope. Yeah, well, this is typical remnant theology here. Look at what Michael Matt is doing. He's quoting Father Francisco de Vitoria, a Dominican theologian who lived in the 15th and 16th century. He's, he's quoting De Vittoria's opinion from hundreds of years ago and acts as though it were binding on us today, when at the same time, he is saying that what the Pope teaches today, remember he thinks Francis is the Pope, is not binding. In fact, cannot be adhered to under pain of mortal sin, if not heresy. So, Mr. Matt, 
if I can junk the papal teaching of the last, let's face it, the last 50 years, then why in the world should I be required to adhere to something said by one theologian who wrote hundreds of years before the First Vatican Council? Does this make any sense? Now, I bring up Vatican I, of course, because Vatican I is the council that dealt in depth with the papacy and the papal magisterium. Why didn't Michael Matt quote a great theologian after Vatican I, after the 1917 Code of Canon Law? Well, I know why. Because he can't find one that backs up his position. That's why. See, back in the 16th century, the opinion that a pope can be resisted in the exercise of his magisterium, if that's what uh, Devatoria was even talking about, I have no idea, I didn't, didn't check it, back then, that was a permissible view to hold. But at least since the 19th century, and especially since Vatican I in 1870, that is no longer a possibility. And just to illustrate the point once more, why, for example, didn't Michael Matt quote Pope Pius IX? In his 1864 encyclical Quanta Cora, Pius IX had something to say about resisting the papal authority, not even with regard to dogma or doctrine, but with regard even to discipline and ecclesiastical laws. Quote, Nor can we pass over in silence the audacity of those who, not enduring sound doctrine, contend that without sin and without any sacrifice of the Catholic profession, assent and obedience may be refused to those judgments and decrees of the apostolic see whose object is declared to concern the church's general good and her rights and discipline, so only it does not touch the dogmata of faith and morals." That's Quanacora number five. Why didn't Michael Matt quote that? Why did he go to a 16th century theologian? Well, the answer is obvious, because he needed a source that agrees with his position. And since he couldn't find one in recent times, he had to go way back into the past before the councils of Vatican I and Trent even. All right, let's go back to the audio. Uh, we're now at the 12 minute, 53 second mark. We're in uncharted waters right now. This very well could be the chastisement because it could lead to all sorts of doubts. Well, if the church can change on fundamental issues of faith and morals, then infallibility doesn't really mean anything. So what other bill of, of goods have we been sold? Is the church real? Did Christ really found it? Is there a God ultimately is where this leads if it's not checked, which again is why we should be so grateful to the princes of the church who are standing up and trying to check it right now. This is unbelievable. See, this is the harebrained theology you end up with if you believe the Vatican II sect is the Catholic Church. Uh, did you catch that? Michael Matt just revealed that he believes that if it weren't for people like those four Novus Ordo Cardinals checking the Church, then the Church would basically be in full-blown apostasy. This is what these people believe about the promise of Christ that the gates of hell won't prevail due to the Petrian primacy. They think it ultimately just means that there will always be someone to keep the church in check. Not the Pope, mind you, because he's obviously the one who needs to be checked. 
but others like uh, Archbishop Lefebvre or uh, a bunch of bishops or cardinals who will then resist until the Holy See is sufficiently orthodox again, sufficiently orthodox to the satisfaction of, well, I guess of Michael Matt and his buddies. Uh, this right there goes to show you that the semi-traditionalists do not believe in the papacy and they do not believe in the Catholic Church. And why don't they? Because they insist that the Vatican II sect is the Catholic Church, and they look at that thing and say, well, obviously, this church, this Holy See, has failed. And so they modify their theology to, to fit the Vatican II church into it. Right? They modify the papacy until Francis fits in. They modify Catholic ecclesiology until the Vatican II sect fits in. And so what they end up with is a false Catholicism that acknowledges a false and openly heretical hierarchy. And then they have the audacity to call themselves traditional Catholics. It's unbelievable. But then, to make it even worse, Michael Matt adds this. We cannot allow our faith in the meantime to be shaken by what's happening in the Vatican. But shaken? Dude, you have already abandoned the faith. You just proved it. You just proved that you don't believe in the papacy, you don't believe in the Catholic Church, you don't believe in the promises of Christ to St. Peter and his successors, you don't believe in Vatican I, which, by the way, says this, quote, The see of St. Peter always remains unimpaired by any error, according to the divine promise which our Lord the Savior made to the chief of his disciples. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Luke 22.32. Unquote. And that, you can look that up in Denzinger 18.36. That's Vatican I. Or take what uh, Pope Pius XI taught, quote, The mystical spouse of Christ has never been contaminated, nor can she ever in the future be contaminated, unquote. And that's in the encyclical Mortalium Animos, number 10. Got that? Let's go back to the audio which does not mean we get all vitriolic and up in everybody's faces on the internet telling them all how great we are, we got it all figured out, Pope Francis is the anti-pope, Pope Francis is the false prophet. How do you know? Gee, how do we know Francis is an anti-pope? Glad you asked, Mr. Matt. Glad you asked. Let's see. There are several ways to know that. Okay, number one, Francis has done things that a true pope is divinely protected from doing. All right. So, for example, he has solemnly declared John Paul II to be a saint of the Catholic Church. Okay, impossible for a true pope to do. All right. Which, by the way, was also once upon a time the position of Christopher Ferreira. Okay, the remnant columnist and associate of Michael Matt. Christopher Ferreira in 2000, and I think it was 2011, wrote in an article that it would be impossible, he used that word, impossible, for the church, obviously referring to the Vatican II church and Novus Ordo Popes, to canonize John Paul II. Okay, that would not be possible, he said. And uh, if I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes. Well, guess what? 
Since Francis did exactly that, canonized John Paul II, Christopher Ferreira, well, you know, I, I don't think he ever really addressed it. He basically just probably threw his hands up in the air and said, whatever. But uh, anyway, so that's one way to know that Francis is not a true pope because he's done things that a true pope is incapable by uh, divine protection uh, of doing. Number two, Francis is publicly professing a false religion by professing any number of heresies such as naturalism, modernism, indifferentism, and so forth. That's another way to know that he's not a true pope. Number three, we know he cannot be a true pope because to suppose that he is a true pope leads one to absurd conclusions, conclusions at odds with Catholic doctrines to which we are bound to adhere and which we are bound to profess. And Michael Matt is exhibit A of precisely this absurdity. Let me give you a perfect example by uh, quoting Matt from just the other day. Here, uh, this is from a different episode of his Remnant Underground program that just came out, published on December 14th, entitled Papal Elections, God's Will versus Human Error. So please humor me for a minute. We'll, we'll just uh, grab an audio soundbite from that episode at the 16 minute and 43 second mark. Here's what Michael Matt says there. The papacy is still protected and will never teach with its infallible authority, a very limited protection, something as true that is false, but everything else is up for grabs. Wow. Unbelievable. It's incredible, the nonsense that this man spouts. But this is what the Society of St. Pius X and all the professional resistors have been preaching for decades, that outside the very narrow limits of papal infallibility— the teaching of the Pope is basically just a bunch of optional suggestions that could even be heretical. What magisterial source does Michael Matt provide as backup for his absurd but awfully convenient claim? Well, none, of course. But examine the traditional Catholic teaching on the papacy, on the binding nature of the authentic papal magisterium, not just the infallible magisterium, either ordinary or extraordinary, and see for yourself that what Matt proposes here is ludicrous and certainly not traditionally Catholic. Let me also point you uh, once again to Canon Smith's essay, Must I Believe It, that we talked about earlier, because uh, he does such a great job summarizing and explaining it all. It's a, it's a really great read, and uh, it's especially for, you know, the, the average layman. See, Matt thinks, and this is a very common misconception, Matt thinks that our duty to adhere to the teaching of the legitimate ecclesiastical authority is grounded in its inability to be wrong. But that's not correct. It's grounded in the appointment by God as the legitimate teaching authority over the faithful. And, and Canon Smith explains that very well. So, just look at uh, what Pope Pius XII said, for example, during an allocution to the general congregation of the Jesuits on September 10th, 1957, quote, 
Let no one take from you the glory of that rectitude in doctrine and fidelity in obedience due to the vicar of Christ. Among your ranks, let there be no room for that free examination more fitting to the heterodox mentality than to the pride of the Christian, and according to which no one hesitates to summon before the tribunal of his own judgment even those things which have their origin in the apostolic see. Unquote. Or how about Pope Pius IX, the encyclical Inter Multiplices, Number seven, quote, Now you know well that the most deadly foes of the Catholic religion have always waged a fierce war, but without success, against this chair. They are by no means ignorant of the fact that religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion. Therefore, because of your special faith in the church and special piety toward the same chair of Peter, we exhort you to direct your constant efforts so that the faithful people of France may avoid the crafty deceptions and errors of these plotters and develop a more filial affection and obedience to this apostolic see. Be vigilant in act and word, so that the faithful may grow in love for this holy see, venerated and accepted with complete obedience. They should execute whatever the see itself teaches, determines, and decrees. Unquote. So much for everything else being up for grabs. Anyway, we're getting a bit sidetracked here. Let's, uh, let's get back to Michael Matt, back to the original Remnant Underground video we were examining, the one of December 2nd entitled Cardinal Sins Resisting Pope Francis. Matt also asked how we know that Francis is the false prophet. Well, I don't know whom he's addressing there, but I have no idea if Francis is the false prophet. I just always like to say that if he's not the false prophet then the real false prophet should sue him for impersonation. You know, in one sense, I think he can't be the false prophet because he's too obvious, right? He doesn't do much to hide his apostasy. But then again, you look at the Catholic world out there, so-called, and they love him, right? Nobody cares for the most part. I mean, every day he's at the Casa Santa Marta giving homilies and he's constantly railing against Catholicism in some way or another. He blasphemes our Lord. He blasphemes our Lady. He accuses St. John the Baptist of doubting whether Jesus Christ was really the Messiah. And they all sit there and take it. There's not a one there in the audience who stands up and shouts heresy, blasphemy. Not a one. It's unbelievable. Then uh, Matt brings up Father Francisco de Vittoria again and, you know, just basically we already talked about this. Once again, he's asking us to follow what a theologian from the uh, 16th century said when at the same time he's asking us to junk what, uh, what he believes to be true popes are teaching today. So uh, does he ever listen to himself? I, I don't know. It just boggles the mind. 
All right. Well, unfortunately, we're still not quite done yet. Uh, let's go and listen to some more audio here. The Remnant Underground, episode 11. We're at the 13 minute, 58 second mark. Here's Michael Matt. And we can't desert the church. It's not that easy just to declare that it's an anti-pope or whatever and desert the church, run off and hide somewhere, start our own little church, <laughs> declare ourselves bishops and popes. We gotta stay and fight. You know, this is where a little bit of Catholic theology comes in real handy. Catholic ecclesiology demands, demands, that we conclude that the church over which Francis is the head, also has uh, five predecessors, but that's another matter now, is not the Catholic Church. Let's look for a moment at Pope Pius XI, Encyclical Mortalium Animos Number 10, quoting St. Cyprian. Quote, the bride of Christ cannot be made false to her spouse. She is incorrupt and modest. She knows but one dwelling. She guards the sanctity of the nuptial chamber chastely and modestly. Unquote. Now, does that sound like the Vatican II Church to you? I uh, didn't think so. See, the, the long and the short of it is that the Vatican II sect is nothing if not a gigantic apostate establishment. If that thing were the Catholic Church, then the Catholic Church would have defected, which is impossible. The Vatican II sect, or Novus Ordo Church, or Conciliar Church, whatever you want to call it, gave us Vatican II and its false teachings, gave us the new mass, the new code of canon law, the... Uh, countless bogus uh, Novus Ordo saints, the directory for the application of principles and norms on ecumenism, and, and so on and so forth. The list is endless. We've all witnessed it. We've, we've lived through the Vatican II sect, and it's absolutely impossible to identify this abominable religious establishment, which has systematically destroyed Catholicism in the souls of generations. It is impossible to identify that establishment with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, of which Pope St. Pius X wrote this, quote, in spite of a great number of pernicious opinions and great variety of errors, the church remains immutable and constant as the pillar and foundation of truth in professing one identical doctrine in receiving the same sacraments in her divine constitution, government, and morality." Unquote. And that is from St. Pius X's encyclical Edite Sepe number 8. Pope Leo XIII said the following about the Catholic Church, quote, It has preached the gospel and has defended it at the price of its blood, and strong in the divine assistance, and of that immortality which have been promised it, it makes no terms with error, but remains faithful to the commands which it has received to carry the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the uttermost limits of the world, and to the end of time, and to protect it in its inviolable integrity, unquote. That was from the uh, apostolic letter Anum Ingressi of March 19th, 1902. Now, you just can't say those things about the Vatican II sect, can you? And yet, it's the Vatican II sect that Michael Matt is telling us we cannot abandon, that we must fight from within it to, well, to do what exactly? I'm not sure. I guess he thinks he can somehow make a modernist sect into the Catholic Church as long as there are enough people who... What? Write petitions? Pray? Subscribe to the remnant? I don't know. 
Now look, I know that Sedevacanus don't have all the answers either, but if we want to get to the truth, we have to first of all sort everything out. We need to look at and distinguish what we know for sure and what we can safely infer from that, from what we don't know and what is doubtful, from what we know is definitely not true, what is contradictory and impossible. And when you do that, you have to proceed very carefully and very strictly. For example, you have to keep in mind that what is improbable or unlikely is not the same as what is impossible. There's an infinite difference between improbable and impossible. People who are not careful thinkers can easily label something as absurd or impossible that really isn't, meaning it doesn't contradict faith or reason, it just seems unlikely. But those are essentially different things. So, to make a point here, while we don't exactly know what happened to the Catholic Church after Pope Pius XII, and while there are many unanswered questions and difficulties to be resolved and, and considered still, we do know that the Novus Ordo Church is not the Catholic Church. We know that because it cannot be, okay? So, wherever else the true Church might be, it's definitely not there, not in the Vatican II sect, right? So we can already cross that one off the list of possibilities. And so this is how you have to proceed. To say that the Novus Ordo Church is the Catholic Church would mean you have to affirm that the Catholic Church can be a danger to the faith and salvation of the souls of her children, that she can make peace with modernism and the enemies of the faith, that she can lead her own souls astray, offer them a poisonous rite of mass that is half Protestant, and so forth. But all of that is impossible, and you can't neutralize that somehow by saying that, oh, but we can't leave the church. Well, of course we can't leave the church, but that's in reference to the true church, not to a false sect that only masquerades as the Catholic Church and has definitively proven that it cannot be the Catholic Church of Jesus Christ. Now, if that should require us to affirm that there are only eight Catholics left and they're hiding out at a horse farm in Iowa, then that's what it is. Now, don't worry, I, I don't believe that, okay? I'm not saying there are only eight Catholics left and they're in Iowa, okay? I think they're in Oregon. I'm just kidding. No, you get my point. We have to throw out what is truly impossible and not reject as impossible that which is only unlikely or hard to accept. Here, don't just, don't just take my word for it. Consider what Father James O'Reilly wrote in the 19th century in his 1882 book, The Relations of the Church to Society, page 288. Quote, we must not be too ready to pronounce on what God may permit. We know with absolute certainty that he will fulfill his promises, not allow anything to occur at variance with them that he will sustain his church and enable her to triumph over all enemies and difficulties, that he will give to each of the faithful those graces which are needed for each one's service of him and attainment of salvation, as he did in all the sufferings and trials which the church has passed through from the beginning. We may also trust he will do a great deal more than what he has bound himself to by his promises. 
We may look forward with a cheering probability to exemption for the future from some of the troubles and misfortunes that have befallen us in the past. But we or our successors in future generations of Christians shall perhaps see stranger evils than have yet been experienced, even before the immediate approach of that great winding up of all things on earth that will precede the day of judgment. I am not setting up for a prophet, nor pretending to see unhappy wonders of which I have no knowledge whatever. All I mean to convey is that contingencies regarding the church not excluded by the divine promises cannot be regarded as practically impossible just because they would be terrible and distressing in a very high degree, unquote. There we go. But unfortunately, Michael Matt and the entire recognize and resist crowd don't get this or they simply don't believe it. Anyway, if you're trying to get a grip on all this and are starting to think that maybe Sedevacanists do have a point after all and are not the spiritual and mental midgets the SSPX and John Salza and Robert Sisko want you to believe that we are, then I suggest you have a look at our helpful and informative article entitled, Now What? Uh, we're linking it in the show notes and encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. It provides some uh, practical guidelines on how to be a real Catholic today, and there are plenty of links there to other sources, so it's a, it's a really great resource. So, Michael Matt, we may not have all the answers, but at least we don't have contradictions. You know, you, you cannot just disbelieve certain points of traditional Catholic doctrine as though they were optional or, or false, Okay? You can't do that. So don't fool yourself here. This is not being humble. That's not humble at all. It's terribly prideful. And besides, once you dismiss one doctrine, you dismiss all of them, of course. And if you don't believe these things, Mr. Matt, if you don't believe traditional Catholic teaching about the papacy, about the church, the magisterium, and so on, then get the heck out of your position as a supposedly traditional Catholic pundit. Folks, we're still not done yet here. You know, originally I didn't mean to go through this whole audio, but I, I just can't help it. It, it. it needs to be addressed. We're now at the 14 minute, 30 second mark. Archbishop Lefebvre and Castro Mayer and a lot of great men resisted this evil spirit in the church in Vatican II 25, 35 years ago, 40 years ago. They were already resisting it. And today, competent authority and Cardinal Burke and the other cardinals and bishops are resisting it again. So we as lay, lay people can be sure that we're on solid ground. Now this is just priceless. Matt enumerates a number of non-Sedevacanists who have resisted the revolution of Vatican II and calls them great men. And on that account, he claims we can know we're doing the right thing if we resist. Now what guarantee do we have that these were really great men to begin with? Well, we have the assurance of... Drum roll, please. Michael Matt. Awesome. It's, it's typical remnant theology, okay? You first have to know who's a great guy and then follow that man in resisting. How do you know he's a great guy? Well, everyone who resists thinks so. <laughs> yeah, great. So that's uh, how Michael Matt thinks. All right. Now let's look at how a Catholic thinks. 
A Catholic doesn't have to figure out first who's great and who isn't or who's a saint and who isn't. Because in the Catholic Church, God has given the faithful a sure guide to matters of faith and morals, an authoritative teacher to whom you can and must adhere in order to enjoy the certain knowledge that you are not going astray, because this teacher's authority is independent of his own greatness or lack thereof, and is grounded instead in the office which was established by Almighty God. Catholics call this teacher the Pope. This is the beauty of Catholicism. Pope Pius IX, in his 1853 encyclical Intermultiplices, number one, says the following, quote, This chair, he's talking about the chair of St. Peter, this chair is the center of Catholic truth and unity. That is, the head, mother, and teacher of all the churches to which all honor and obedience must be offered. Every church must agree with it because of its greater preeminence, unquote. In 1896, Pope Leo XIII taught, quote, Union with the Roman See of Peter is always the public criterion of a Catholic. You are not to be looked upon as holding the true Catholic faith if you do not teach that the faith of Rome is to be held, unquote. And that's from the encyclical Satis Cognitum, uh, number 13. Now, I could give you many more quotes like that, but I think the point is established. For the remnant and the other recognized and resistors, the way to be a faithful Catholic is to attach oneself to a person one judges to be a great guy and then together with him resist the Pope and his magisterium. For Roman Catholics, on the other hand, the way to be a faithful Catholic is to attach oneself precisely to the Pope and not resist him but adhere firmly to his magisterium. And if this cannot be done because the supposed papal magisterium is a sewer of heresy and error, then perhaps it's time to finally figure out that what cannot be true is not true, and the guy you've been led to believe is the Pope actually isn't. Just an idea. You know, I think that in many ways, this is God testing us. Do we really believe in the Catholic Church? Do we really believe in His church. But unlike what Michael Matt wants you to think, believing in the church does not mean closing your eyes to remain attached to the Vatican II sect no matter what. It means affirming of the church what the church teaches about herself, about her nature, her indefectibility, her infallibility, her purity, and so forth. And as we've just seen, Michael Matt doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that at all. Oh, sure. I mean, when challenged, he'll say that only the human element of the church has gone bad. But if you look at his position closely, you notice that it's not simply the human element at all. Because we're talking about official doctrine, canonization of saints, universal disciplinary laws, liturgical and sacramental rites, and so on. Well, if all that is the human element, Mr. Mad, then please tell us, what qualifies as the divine element? By the way, real quick, I need to say one more thing about uh, what Matt said regarding these great men of competent authority that are resisting Francis now. As we heard in the audio, he mentioned specifically Cardinal Raymond Burke. 
And I find that really funny because Burke isn't on the remnant side at all, except maybe with regard to Francis and especially the Amoris Laetitia heresies. But Burke is a Vatican II supporter through and through. I mean, he's certainly not taken the position of the remnant or the SSPX uh, with regard to the council or the new mass. So here you have Matt appealing to Burke as a competent authority, but as usual, only and to the extent that he, Burke, supports the position of the remnant. This is typical of these people. You know, they always start with their own position, and then they look for people who agree with them, and then declare that those people who agree with them are, after all, prestigious and learned men whom we should follow. Yeah? Well, you know, there are and were a number of prestigious and learned men out there in the new church that do not agree with the remnant, like Bishop Fulton Sheen, for example. Right? He didn't resist Vatican II. Right? He was Novus Ordo. Or Walter Casper, right? He's considered a learned, prestigious theologian in the new church. But Matt will never tell you to follow those because of their competence or authority, right? And why not? (laughs) Because, you see, those are the ones you need to resist because they don't agree with the remnant. This this is how this works in uh, what I call semi-trad wonderland, You argue backwards. You start with the conclusion, and then you look for someone who supports it. You don't start with the authority first and then allow that to dictate your conclusion, as you would in the Catholic Church. Well, and you know, all this is very serious business. We're talking about church doctrine here and the validity of the sacraments. We're talking about the very salvation of souls, And yet the semi-traditionalists are acting like all this is their private play toy to mess around with as they see fit. After all, they are not like those arrogant set of economists who dare to draw necessary conclusions from true premises. No, they are the humble ones who would rather distort, ignore, or deny Catholic doctrine than say that the current papal claimant isn't a real pope. Because, well, we just can't have that, apparently. Right? We just, that, that can't be. I mean, it, it's bizarre. I mean, that someone should claim to be Pope who isn't is totally possible. That's not incompatible with any church doctrine or with reason. But when it comes to things that truly are impossible, like saying that papal magisterium is not authoritative or uh, saying that the church can give us false saints or invalid sacraments, that's totally cool with them. No problem. But as we've seen, they have to pay a hefty price for this unreasonable position of theirs. For their insistence that the Novus Ordo popes are true and valid popes, they must sacrifice the Catholic teaching on the church, on the magisterium, and on the papacy. Michael Matt ends his 11th episode of The Remnant Underground with an appeal to St. Vincent of Larens. He actually misuses St. Vincent much in the same way the so-called old Catholics did back in the late 1860s against papal infallibility, claiming that the doctrine wasn't traditional and so they were just going to stick to the ancient doctrine instead. For the whole St. Vincent argument, we'll just refer you to our article uh, entitled Deflating Another Resistance Myth. Can we reject magisterial teaching if it wasn't believed always, everywhere, and by all? And we've got that linked in our show notes. 
So enough of the remnant underground. We can probably all agree by now that underground is exactly where they need to stay. Folks, here you can see why it takes so long to put together a Tradcast. There is just so much to say, and we've really only scratched the surface compared to all the issues and news stories and things that uh, we should and could have talked about. So, you know what? I'd say let's uh, finally take a break here so we can all breathe a little bit. When we come back, we'll we'll chat a little bit, okay? Have a little bit of fun, play a game, and... I don't know. Just let yourself be surprised. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's not just a podcast. It's, it's a, a Trapcast. Trapcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming? One that addresses not only the current crisis in the church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member-supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. Here we are, back again, tradcasting like there's no tomorrow, because the way this world is going, there just might not be. Tradcast is a production of Novus Ordo Watch at NovusOrdoWatch.org, where we're not more Catholic than the Pope, just more Catholic than the anti-Pope, and that's pretty easy to do. All right, we went through a lot of stiff information in the first segment of this uh, program, and I'd like to make things a bit more relaxed in the second portion. You know, I had a chuckle the other day when I got my Angelus Press catalog in the mail. Um, Angelus Press, in, in case you don't know, is the publishing house of the Society of St. Pius X here in the United States. And they, they just recently sent out what they call their winter catalog, 2016-2017. And um, it's 88 pages, so it's a, it's a pretty good size. And I had to chuckle because it's only been a year, not even quite a year actually, since the release of what was supposed to be the big blockbuster refutation of Sedevacantism. You know what I'm talking about. The book True or False Pope by John Salza and Robert Sisko. And guess what? That book is nowhere to be found in those 88 pages, not even in the complete list of titles carried by Angelus Press at the end of the catalog on pages 82 
to 86. The book's just not there. Now, you'd think that if it was such a great work and such a good seller and all, they'd have this book perhaps not on page one, but at least somewhere in the catalog. But nope, not anymore. Or actually, I don't know if they had it in the previous catalogs or not, but I would assume that they did. I mean, you can still order it from their website, angelespress.org, but it's not in the catalog. And no, this is not a Christmas catalog with just Christmas items. It's the full catalog for the current season, and they're acting like they don't even offer the book. What's going on here? I find that significant. Now, I mentioned this on Twitter a while back, and uh, Steve Skojak from uh, 1 Peter 5 decided to contact Angelus Press and ask them. Their answer was that there was no particular reason for not including the book. Really? <laughs> Likely story. Especially when you consider that you can't find it even on their website catalog. I mean, yes, you'll find it if you go to the search box and type in true or false pope, but if you just browse by category, you won't find it. It's not listed. I checked the apologetic section, modern errors, SSPX slash modern crisis, uh, catechetics slash theology, education. I even checked the fiction section, just to be sure. But no, that book just ain't there. Gone. Don't you hate it when that happens? <laughs> now, of course, I don't know why they don't include the book in their print or online catalog now, but I do have my suspicions. This is just my opinion, but I think that now that it's been published, a number of priests in the SSPX started to actually read the book in depth, and it started to dawn on them that the work is loaded with theological errors. And so they're gradually trying to direct people's attention away from it, and so they're no longer promoting it. That's, that's what, I, what I think. That and uh, when you look at what Salza and Cisco have done with their website, I mean, just look at it, trueorfalsepope.com. It's the perfect blueprint for how not to do this, Okay, how not to tackle this whole controversy. So I think the SSPX is embarrassed at this point. And Novel's Auto Watch hasn't even really started responding yet. We're going to, uh, at least depends on what Francis is going to do because he you know, keeps opening his mouth and that's what keeps everybody busy. Um, but uh, anyway, this is just my opinion. So if anyone else out there knows why the SSPX has chosen not to include this book in their catalog please let us know. You can email us at tratcast at novusordowatch.org. All right, next. Oh, yeah, I hope you like our new website, the new Novos Ordo Watch that we released back in September, novusordowatch.org. Like I said before, um, it took a lot of work, but it was all totally worth it, at least from my perspective. And I hope that um, after you've had some time now to get used to the new look and the, the new layout and the new structure, that you've been able to see for yourself that this website upgrade was a really good idea. Also, I'd like to give a brief shout out to all our benefactors out there. You know who you are. Thank you very much for your contributions this year. They're very much appreciated and very much needed. Please do continue to support us 
And um, I'd like to also appeal to anyone who has not contributed yet so far. If you are of sufficient means, please consider making a financial contribution. It's tax deductible to the full extent of the law in the United States. And so if you want to uh, give some dollars to a traditional Roman Catholic cause rather than to the U.S. government, this is your chance. NovosOrdoWatch.org slash donate. And of course, we'll also provide a link to that in our show notes. And our piggy bank certainly appreciates it. Yeah. And keep in mind also that sometimes donors uh, simply drop off. They just disappear, stop contributing. So, you know, it's just difficult in general to plan a budget when, when essentially you just don't know how much money will be coming in during a given period. And so, of course, we, you know, you also have to put money aside for some eventual equipment upgrades and, and stuff. You know, computers get old, monitors fail, and, you know, the whole thing. So, it, plus, the better the equipment that you have, the more productive you can be. And uh, the more productive you are, the, the more gets done. And that's always a good thing. So, the need for funds is always there, uh, uh, though we really do have a very low operating budget uh, for the entire year, comparatively speaking. Um, I think it's roughly $50,000 or so for one year, and uh, we really want to keep it small like that. Anyway, uh, thank you again. Thank you to all of you who've been helping out. Uh, we really appreciate it. So what else do we have here? Oh, yes. Uh, just a quick announcement in case you didn't notice yet. Our annual Novus Ogre contest has been discontinued. That was the yearly poll on who was the worst offender in the modernist sect in the prior year. Yes, Francis, of course, but uh, we had a rule that you couldn't pick the currently reigning antipope because uh, he would obviously win every year. Right, And then there'd be no point to the contest. So anyway, we're no longer having it. It was, uh, it was simply too much work, okay? And we, we need to focus on the really important things instead. So the Novos Ogre contest uh, discontinued. Then uh, let's maybe briefly touch on a few news items, which at this point aren't news anymore, but interesting to comment on anyway. Such as, on October 19th, Italian Novus Ordo historian Roberto de Mattei asked, To which church does Pope Bergoglio belong? Now, I thought this was an amusing headline, an amusing title for an essay, and uh, I would answer the question this way. Mr. de Mattei, sen Signore de Mattei. Whatever church Bergoglio may belong to, it's the church you also belong to if he's your spiritual head. Okay? Hello? <whistles> then, uh, oh, this is, this is priceless. Folks, we have a new professional Francis explainer. Yeah! Move over, Jimmy Aiken. Here comes Tom Hoops. In October, this man came out with a book entitled... What Pope Francis really said, you know, what the Pope really said. And um, to my amazement, the thing is only 153 pages long, when I would have thought that Jimmy Akin's foreword alone would be that many pages. But 
No, it's a pretty short book, and of course it only covers, well, very little, relatively little, right? I mean, compared to what he Francis um, has said in these three and a half years so far. And I have a copy of the book here, and I haven't read it, but I'm also not inclined to because the book starts with this sentence, quote, Pope Francis is a mystery, unquote. That's the first sentence in the introduction. Now, when I read that, I already had enough because there is no mystery here. This, this, oh, the Pope is such a mystery. They said this about Paul VI. They said it about John Paul II. And I don't know, they probably also said it about Benedict XVI. Just, just quit the nonsense already. All this mystery stuff is only meant to excuse the fact that what we see here is manifest non-Catholics trying to undermine Catholicism. Their behavior is consistent with that. The devil always comes as an angel of light, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.14, precisely in order to deceive. The deceiver always makes it look like he's a good guy or perhaps confused, but of goodwill, rather than wicked and of bad intent. In his encyclical against modernism, Pope St. Pius X stated this, quote, It is one of the cleverest devices of the modernists to present their doctrines without order and systematic arrangement, in a scattered and disjointed manner, so as to make it appear as if their minds were in doubt or hesitation whereas in reality, they are quite fixed and steadfast, unquote. And that's the encyclical Pascendi number four. In 1794, Pope Pius VI released the bull Auctorum Fide, in which he denounced the proto-modernist innovators of the Italian Synod of Pistoia. He noted that, quote, seemingly shocking affirmations in one place are further developed along orthodox lines in other places, and even in yet other places corrected, as if allowing for the possibility of either affirming or denying the statement, or of leaving it up to the personal inclinations of the individual. Unquote. And he went on to say that this tactic, this method, quote, has always been the fraudulent and daring method used by innovators to establish error. It allows for both the possibility of promoting error and of excusing it. Unquote. Now, does that not sound familiar? So, I wanted to bring this up as a little papal reality check, okay? See, these popes didn't sit back and say, Oh my, these modernists are just an enigma. They're such a mystery. No, back then, people had a BS detector, okay? And so, the popes denounced the heretics for their false doctrines and their deceptions. People nowadays have a very unreasonable fear of ever judging anything. Now, of course, we're not allowed to make rash judgments. That's true. Making rash judgments is wrong. But for heaven's sake, we don't have to be unreasonable. I mean, look at what Francis has said and done in the last three and a half years. Are those the words and actions of a Catholic? Even if we allow a certain latitude as far as sometimes misspeaking or making a mistake, does Francis act like a faithful Orthodox Catholic who sometimes makes an innocent mistake? 
Does he, for example, rush to apologize and clarify for having misspoken or made a mistake and then take concrete steps to ensure that it won't happen again? Obviously, he doesn't, but that's how a Catholic would act, a person who is orthodox and sincere. You redress the scandal you've caused, you apologize, and you do everything you can to ensure it won't happen again. And look at what Francis is doing just with these four cardinals and the dubia. These four prelates are basically asking, Holy Father, is the sixth commandment still valid? And he's basically saying, well, I'm not talking to you. Yeah, Mr. Dialogue and Encounter, Mr. Reach Out to the Peripheries, the ever-talkative builder of bridges, does not want to talk all of a sudden. He puts up a wall instead. It's amazing how that works. So, for heaven's sake, people, open your eyes. You know, failure to judge when you must judge is also a sin, I might add. In the gospel, Christ calls us to be wise as serpents, not idiots with our head in the sand. And scripture speaks of those in whose hands are iniquities, and yet their right hand is filled with gifts. Sound familiar? That's Psalm 2510. The priest prays this at every Mass. It's the psalm prayed during the lavabo, the washing of the hands. And whose hands are iniquities, their right hand is filled with gifts. Anyway, like I said, I, I haven't read Tom Hoops's book, uh, What Pope Francis Really Said, but I suspect it's basically just putting as much orthodox spin as possible on Francis's words and actions as a way to practice some damage control. But... I can guarantee you that uh, at this stage in the game, this isn't going to work. As a book of 153 pages published in late 2016, this is simply too little, too late. If Hoops had uh, published this three years ago, people would have probably fallen for it. But, but now, there's, there's just no salvaging Francis. At this point, with all that has transpired... All the constant speeches, addresses, homilies, press conferences, interviews, to stand there with a straight face and tell people that they've all just misunderstood the poor Pope. This isn't going to fly, okay? So I don't expect that this book will be a hot seller. Besides, most of the book's 10 chapters have kind of cryptic titles, so you can't easily tell what each chapter is about in, in terms of what Francis said. And there is no index, so it's not like you can just quickly uh, look up a particular thing that Francis said. You have to actually hope that the author covered it and then find it in the text somewhere. If anything, I think uh, Hoops has made a, a fool out of himself here. Now, if you want some more information about this book and more of our commentary on this whole idea of explaining to people what Francis really said, uh, check out our blog post from October entitled Pathetic Damage Control Effort. New book aims to clarify what Francis really said, which we have uh, linked in our show notes for this episode, episode 16. So you can find it there. All right, now let's go to Lund for a minute. Remember Lund, Sweden? Francis went there on October 31st for a joint ceremony with the pro-abortion Lutherans there 
commemorating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's so-called Protestant Reformation. You know, I always love it when uh, Novels Ordos and Semi-Trads accuse us of Akanis of uh, being just like Protestants. You know, for saying that the guy who celebrates the Protestant Reformation can't be the Pope of the Catholic Church. So, yeah, that's, that's always a hoot. So, uh, Lund. Well, see, <laughs> now I forgot what I wanted to talk about. Thanks a lot. But uh, not a bad thing, actually, since there's lots more, lots more to talk about. Like Mr. Hunwick, for example. Well, in the Novus Ordo, he's Father Hunwick, but uh, we're not in the Bogus Ordo here, okay? So he's Mr. Hunwick. On November 4th, John Hunwick, who is a convert from Anglicanism, by the way, published a short blog post entitled Sedevacantism Yet Again. And uh, in this post, he once again demonstrated very beautifully why no one should pay any attention to him, because he doesn't have a clue, all right? He used one of the oldest strawmen in the book and then smugly proceeded to solemnly refute it with all the might of his keyboard. Here's what he wrote, quote, My often expressed view is that the ultra-hyper-uber-papalism of some who surround Papa Bergoglio and Sedevacantism are two sides of the same dangerously erroneous coin, or, if you prefer, a pair of inseparably joined Siamese twins. They both massively exaggerate the personal inerrancy of the man who is the Roman pontiff. Accepting an absurdly inflated notion of personal papal inerrancy, Bergoglian ultras, correctly believing him to be pope, conclude that therefore his every word and even hint must be the ipsissimum verbum spiritus. Sedevacantists, deeming him to be guilty of repeated blunders, conclude that he obviously cannot really be Pope. Both views are equally absurd, and both involve the same erroneous premise, personal papal inerrancy. I have called it an error. I think I could justify calling it a heresy in view of the defined dogma of Vatican I that the successors of St. Peter have not been given the Holy Spirit so that by his inspiration they could propagate new doctrine, and both are equally dangerous to souls. Unquote. Oh, brother. All right, Mr. Hunwick, let me give it to you straight. Sedevacantes do not exaggerate the personal inerrancy of the Roman pontiff at all. In fact, papal inerrancy, papal infallibility, has nothing, or very little, to do with the whole matter. But that's a very convenient and easy straw man to knock down, of course, and so it makes sense that you, Mr. Hunwick, would distort our position like that. Being inerrant is one thing. Being Catholic is another. We don't say that to be pope, a pope must be inerrant in all things, all the time. But we do insist that to be pope, a pope must always be a Catholic. What a concept, right? The Pope is the visible head of the Catholic Church. To be Pope, you must be a member of the Church. To be a member of the Church, you must profess the true faith. Therefore, to be Pope, you must profess the true faith. If you do not profess the true faith, you cannot be Pope. That is the syllogism. And notice that inerrancy didn't come up at all. 
You don't have to be personally inerrant to be a Catholic. You don't have to be personally inerrant in order not to be a heretic. If that were the case, then no one could be a Catholic, since no one is personally inerrant. So, this whole inerrancy business is a straw man, a red herring that Hunwick threw out there to make everyone think Sedevacanists don't have a leg to stand on. And as far as the authority of the Pope goes, again, not the infallibility, but the authority of the Pope. We've seen from a number of quotes earlier in this program that our position is simply that of the popes themselves, of the Catholic Church's magisterial teaching regarding the nature and authority of the Roman pontificate. Remember, it was Pope Pius IX who taught that the teaching of the Roman See must be received with complete obedience. He didn't say anything about infallibility there. And it was Pius XII who said that no one is allowed to summon before the tribunal of his own judgment what comes from the apostolic see. So no, that's not just us Sedevacanists saying that. That's the very popes themselves. Or maybe they too were just ultra-hyper-uber-papalists. In any case, that's where we get our principles, Mr. Hunwick, from the Catholic magisterium. So now the question is, where do you get yours? Oh, but Vatican I says in Denzinger 1836 that the Holy Ghost was not promised to the successors of St. Peter so they could teach new doctrines. Precisely. But what does that have to do with anything? We're certainly not saying otherwise. Orthodoxy is the result of the protection of the Holy Ghost, not its condition. So, whatever. I, I don't know where he was going with that. Look, Mr. Hunwick, if you don't know what you're talking about, that's fine. Just keep it to yourself, okay? Uh, by the way, this past year, Hunwick spoke at the uh, Roman Forum at uh, Lake Garda in Italy. That's one of those indult conferences promoted by uh, the Remnant and Rorata Celi. And uh, he showed up in plain clothes, yeah, we've got the we've got the link up for you to a video that was uh, posted by the Remnant on Facebook on July second. Uh, that video shows Hunwick giving a talk in a dress shirt and suspenders. So, anyway, I just thought that was funny. You know, there's your supposedly super trad, mega conservative Latin mass presbyter, and then he doesn't even wear a Roman collar. Well, maybe it's poetic justice. And maybe we should just give him a pass. I mean, you've got to feel bad for him. As a convert from Anglicanism to the Novus Ordo, he's had two ordinations and he's still not a priest. So, exit Mr. Hunwick. Oh, you know what? It's time It's time we played that game now that I uh, announced in the, in the first uh, segment. This is going to be fun. Well, it, it won't be for those in the Recognize and Resist camp, but for Catholics, this is going to be a great game. If Francis is the Pope, and if pre-Vatican II traditional Catholic teaching is valid, something that is verbally and sometimes quite vociferously maintained by the Recognize and Resist camp, then we should be able to just substitute Francis for Pope or Roman Pontiff or Vicar of Christ, and so on, in those pre-Vatican II magisterial documents, right? And the result should be perfectly acceptable to people like Mr. Hunwick, 
Michael Matt, Chris Ferreira, John Venari, John Salza, the whole gang, right? So we could call this the put your money where your mouth is game. So let's begin. First, we'll go to Pope Pius XII's encyclical, Mystici Corporis, numbers 40 through 41. This is the original text. Quote, that Christ and his vicar constitute one only head is the solemn teaching of our predecessor of immortal memory, Boniface VIII, and the apostolic letter Unam Sanctum, and his successors have never ceased to repeat the same. They, therefore, walk in the path of dangerous error who believe that they can accept Christ as the head of the church while not adhering loyally to his vicar on earth. They have taken away the visible head, broken the visible bonds of unity, and left the mystical body of the Redeemer so obscured and so maimed that those who are seeking the haven of eternal salvation can neither see it nor find it. Unquote. Okay, so now let's replace the various references to the Pope with references to Jorge Mario Bergoglio, Pope Francis. Let's see how that sounds. Quote, that Christ and Francis constitute one only head is the solemn teaching of our predecessor of immortal memory, Boniface VIII, and the apostolic letter Unam Sanctum, and his successors have never ceased to repeat the same. They, therefore, walk in the path of dangerous error who believe that they can accept Christ as the head of the church while not adhering loyally to Francis on earth. They have taken away the visible head, broken the visible bonds of unity, and left the mystical body of the Redeemer so obscured and so maimed that those who are seeking the haven of eternal salvation can neither see it nor find it, unquote. So, what do you think? You think John Venary would put his name to that statement? <laughs> Didn't think so. Now, for the next one, to save time, I won't quote you the original first, okay? I'll just go right ahead with the modified version. So, here we go. Pope Leo XIII, Apostolic Letter, Epistola Tua. Quote, If it should happen that those who have no right to do so should attribute authority to themselves, if they presume to become judges and teachers, if inferiors in the government of the universal church attempt or try to exert an influence different from that of Francis... There follows a reversal of the true order. Many minds are thrown into confusion, and souls leave the right path. It is to give proof of a submission which is far from sincere to set up some kind of opposition between one pontiff and another. Those who, faced with two differing directives, reject Francis to hold to the past are not giving proof of obedience to the authority which has the right and duty to guide them, and in some ways, they resemble those who, on receiving a condemnation, would wish to appeal to a future council or to a pope who is better informed. Unquote. Maybe we'll just leave that uncommented. Uh, then I've got one just for Michael Matt and John Venary, who are both journalists. A little further on in the same apostolic letter by Pope Leo XIII, we read this. Quote, the task pertaining to them, them meaning the, uh, the journalists, the Pope's talking about journalists, 
the task pertaining to them and all the things that concern religion and that are closely connected to the action of the church in human society is this, to be subject completely in mind and will, just as all the other faithful are, to their own bishops and to Francis, to follow and make known their teachings, to be fully and willingly subservient to their influence and to reverence their precepts and assure that they are respected." Unquote. I told you this was fun. Here, one more, just one more, from the First Vatican Council, Dogmatic Constitution, Pastor Eternus, Denzinger, 1830. Quote, And since Francis is at the head of the universal church by the divine right of apostolic primacy, we teach and declare also that Francis is the supreme judge of the faithful and that in all cases pertaining to ecclesiastical examination, recourse can be had to his judgment. Moreover, that the judgment of Francis, whose authority is not surpassed, is to be disclaimed by no one nor is anyone permitted to pass judgment on his judgment. Therefore, they stray from the straight path of truth who affirm that it is permitted to appeal from the judgments of Francis to an ecumenical council as to an authority higher than Francis. Unquote. All right, I mean, we could uh, spend hours doing this, right? You get the idea. Folks who believe Francis is Pope must affirm these things I just said. Because... That is the Catholic teaching on the papacy. So no, you cannot take this middle position where you have your pope and beat him too. To deny Catholic dogma on the papacy is heresy. To affirm it but refuse submission in practice is the sin of schism. Well, you know, Catholic theology has consequences. All this turmoil we're seeing now in the Novus Ordo Church with uh, Francis and the Morris Letizia and stuff, this is all simply the necessary practical consequence of the harebrained idea that a public heretic can be Pope. What we're seeing is the false recognize and resist position blowing up in everybody's face. It's finally being put to a real test in practice, and it's failing miserably. The square peg of Francis will not fit into the round hole of the papacy. And so the recognized and resistors start using a hammer and a chisel on both until they somehow fit. The problem is they've modified the hole and or the peg, or both. They either deny some fact about Francis, something he said or did, or they deny some aspect of the papacy. Well... Catholic is allowed to do neither, okay? It's time to junk the square peg and insist on a round one. Let me illustrate in another way what I mean here. Back on November 1st, The Remnant published another one of their videos, this time an episode of The Remnant Forum, entitled The Lutheran Pope, Ecumaniacs in Sweden. Now, the Remnant Forum is basically just Michael Matt Skyping with Chris Ferreira, the retired lawyer from Virginia who is also a Remnant columnist and uh, one of the chief rhetoricians of the Neotrad resistance camp. This particular episode focused on France's trip to Sweden to celebrate the Reformation anniversary, and so the heresy was just staring everyone in the face. And so Michael Matt asked Chris Ferreira whether Francis was an anti-pope in the making. 
Ferreira's response to that was very revealing. Here's the soundbite, beginning at the 6 minute 46 second mark. I mean, what are we looking at here, Chris? Is this an anti-Pope in the making scenario? or What, what is it? I, I really don't care what label you apply to him at this point. He simply isn't behaving in the manner of a vicar of Christ. Did you get that? Ferreira just said, I really don't care what label you apply to him at this point. Let that sink in for a minute. What label you apply to him, pope or anti-pope, whatever. It's all the same. It's just a label for Chris Ferreira. Now, with everything that we've looked at today in terms of traditional Catholic teaching on the papacy, you can easily see how unsustainable such a position is, to say the least. I mean, it's not just unsustainable, it's heretical, and it's outrageous. But this is what resistance theology does to Catholic teaching on the papacy. This is what I mean when I say that they're modifying that round hole of the papacy to fit the square peg named Jorge Bergoglio somehow into it. They've reduced the papacy to a label. This is unbelievable. I mean, we've always known that they do that, but the candidness of the admission, and nobody batting an eye, that is what's so incredible about this. Pope or anti-pope, it's all the same. Vicar of Christ, vicar of Satan. What difference at this point does it make? Now, later on in the same program, Ferreira repeated it, by the way, and Michael Matt echoed it. Here, the 15-minute and 24-second mark. We don't really even have a word for it. If people want to throw anti-pope, they want to throw false prophet around, they want to call... It doesn't Saint matter. It doesn't matter what around. It doesn't really. You're right. This is, such a, this is such a massive apocalyptic mess that we're in right now that whatever you know, particular camp or group or label you want to use is irrelevant. This is bigger than all of it. Uh, this is bigger than all of it, huh? It sounds like something Francis could have said. And really convenient, too, because you get to ignore and contradict Catholic teaching, and when someone calls you on it, you just tell them, this whole thing is bigger than all of it. It's apocalyptic. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, it's, it's just not Catholicism. That's the problem. Here's another clear example. On November 3rd, Chris Ferreira said the following regarding Amoris Laetitia and the false principles and ideas it puts forth. Quote, Behold the dissolving magisterium, or so they think. For in reality, this attempted corruption of doctrine, absolutely without precedent in the history of the church, binds no one. Unquote. See, this is what I mean. This is Ferreira modifying the round hole of the papacy, and more specifically here the papal magisterium, in order to fit Francis into it. He declares, not Francis, no, he, Ferreira, declares what is binding and what is not, even, if need be, against the very man he insists is the supreme authority of the Catholic Church. Well, I, I guess at this point he doesn't even insist anymore since he now thinks it doesn't matter uh, if Francis is Pope or not. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. But honestly, to say that it doesn't matter if Francis is Pope is even worse than saying that he is Pope. Because by saying that it doesn't matter, 
you're saying that the papacy is essentially meaningless and has no consequences over the lives of Catholics. And that is, of course, exactly Ferrer's position. Again, round hole meets square peg, and since the two don't fit, Ferreira uses a big hammer. Problem solved. Or so he thinks. Well, this is the same Chris Ferreira who is on record calling Francis an undertaker pope and an antichrist pope. So, what do you expect? You know, ultimately, I really don't care what these people believe. The problem is just that they're calling their position traditional Roman Catholic, and in that way, they're misleading souls. That's the problem. And what makes it worse, then, is when you leave a comment on their website about an article that they post, and then they remove your comment because they don't like what you say because it contradicts their position. Yeah, they did that to me back in late September. At the Remnant website, they had posted a blog entry entitled Cisco and Salsa Release Groundbreaker, which basically linked to an article from the Salsa Cisco website on the question of whether perhaps Benedict XVI might not be the true pope instead of Francis. So on this blog post, Michael Matt added a little editor's note that said the following. Now, this is just an excerpt, not the whole thing, but it gives the gist. Quote, one point I've always found somewhat perplexing about this issue. If tomorrow I were to denounce Francis as an antipope, what would that actually accomplish, other than making the neo-Catholic critics of the remnant very happy? In other words, if I pronounce those words, I'd be hailed by a few folks on the internet for having the courage to say it like it is. Our Sedevacanus friends would waste no time pointing out how finally and at long last the remnant woke up. But then what? Is our situation somehow improved? Is the church out of crisis? Do we get to leave the battlefield and go back home? Unquote. Okay, so he's asking these questions, and I assumed he was asking them sincerely, so I decided to respond in the com box where anybody can leave comments that are visible to the public. Well, if they get approved, that is. Anyway, here's what I wrote in my response. Quote, It doesn't matter to you guys, and I'm talking here about uh, whether Francis is a pope or an antipope, it doesn't matter to you guys because you don't submit to Francis anyway. To a Catholic, it makes all the difference in the world whether someone is the vicar of Christ or not because the papacy has consequences. Unquote. That was my response, and sure enough, that did not get published, but was deleted. Then I responded in someone else's thread in that same com box, where Michael Matt, or whoever the remnant moderator actually is, claimed that St. Peter, when he denied Christ, was essentially no different from what Francis is doing now. So I responded to that as well, and I pointed out that, for one thing, St. Peter wasn't Pope yet when uh, he denied Christ. Well, Michael Matt didn't want to hear that, and so he sort of disputed it, and then I responded to that again and uh, quoted Vatican I. And this is uh, Denzinger 1822, quote, And upon Simon Peter alone, Jesus 
after his resurrection, conferred the jurisdiction of the highest pastor and rector over his entire fold, saying, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, unquote. And then I also said, if you're unable to distinguish being pope from not being pope with all the theological consequences this entails, or if you dismiss this distinction as insignificant, then you have no business writing about this. And then to respond to the argument that is frequently brought up about Galatians 2.11, where St. Paul resisted St. Peter to his face, I said the following, Scandal is a sin anyone can commit without ceasing to be a member of the church, and you know that. And if you'd like to argue that St. Peter's venial fault of imprudence in Galatians 2.11, following St. Augustine, see Haydock commentary on this passage, was in essence no different from Francis' abolishing of sin in Amoris Laetitia or any of his other outright heresies, go right ahead, but then do it openly for all to see. Well, not surprisingly, that too got deleted. Apparently, that was too much to handle for the person who claimed he was trying to understand why it is of any significance whether Francis is pope or anti-pope. I have the screenshots of these posts, so I can prove that they were deleted, and I'll put a link to them in the show notes so you can verify that for yourself. And no, I'm not someone who is pouting because his comments got deleted. I rarely post comments elsewhere, and it's really not about me at all. What bothers me about this is that Michael Matt is ostensibly asking an important question, and then, when you answer him, he'll delete the post and won't let anyone see it because he doesn't like the answer. So, I have no sympathy anymore with uh, the remnant and these people because... As you can see, they don't want any answers. They don't even want a genuine discussion of the issues. They just want to sit there and whine and complain and continue to have their position no matter what. And they're causing grave harm to souls in the process. Pray for them because they'll have a lot to answer for. They're distorting, seriously distorting Catholic teaching. And like I, like I said before... This is serious business, and they still don't seem to get that. You know, it's one thing to say, help, I don't have all the answers, I don't know about this, what are we going to do, and so on, if it's sincere, right? But what's going on at the remnant is that they act as though they were sincere in their confusion, but whenever they get challenged on it, just a bit too much for what they can handle, boom, Whatever they don't want to hear and don't want their followers to see gets silenced or removed. This is not how people act who sincerely seek answers or seek a genuine debate on the subject. And by the way, at Novel's Ordo Watch, we do not remove comments that are challenging or critical of our position. In fact, the only time I will refuse to approve a comment or delete one that's already posted is if it's spam or the person is just trying to cause trouble and isn't really interested in a discussion at all, or, or some other reason similar to that. I will not delete or fail to approve a post simply because I don't like what it says. Usually what I'll do if I get a post that's critical of our position and the criticism is substantial, 
I will typically respond to the post so that the errors of the original poster aren't left standing unrefuted, but I won't just delete it. I may delay approval of a post until I have a chance to respond or, or something like that, but I'll never simply not approve the comment. Because then what's the point of the combox? I mean, if all you allow is comments that agree with you or praise you, then it's really just an echo chamber whose purpose is to tell everyone how awesome your website is. And, and that's clearly not what comboxes should be for. Tradcast. My goodness, we've covered a lot of ground. I know you're waiting for something still. That's right, that big exciting announcement that I promised at the beginning of the show. Okay, so here we go. Producing a Tradcast like this takes forever, as you've noticed, and we need to change that. So until we can get someone to donate like a million dollars so I can hire an entire production and research staff, we're going to have to do something else to bridge that long wait in between Tradcasts that you've become accustomed to now. Since there's always so much happening so fast, and most of that simply can't wait until a new Tradcast gets produced to be commented on, we're going to, in the new year, start launching mini-podcasts called Tradcast Express. And these will be very short podcasts, anywhere from... I don't know, one to five minutes or so, that will be published very frequently, several times a week, uh, hopefully, with, with quick, pertinent commentary on some current happening or event in the new church, or some article posted by the semi-trads, or anything else we would uh, blog about at uh, Novel Sorta Watch or cover in a tradcast. And this will be very minimal. Okay, this podcast. So no fancy music, no big research, no show notes, nothing that takes a lot of time to put together or prepare. Okay, because we need to be able to produce these mini podcasts quickly. Right, that's the whole point. Now I hope to start launching Tradcast Express in January, but I haven't quite figured out yet exactly how I'm going to distribute them. They certainly won't be posted on YouTube because that takes too long, okay? That's just way too much time. So if someone else wants to grab the audio and post it on YouTube, that's fine. But Novus Auto Watch probably won't. Anyway, details will certainly be provided on our blog at novelsortowatch.org uh, once we're ready to, to launch Tradcast Express. And not to worry, we'll definitely continue with a Tradcast Classic as well, right? It's just that now you're going to have more Tradcasting to look forward to, not less, all right? So that's the plan. Let's pray that it'll come to fruition soon. And with this, we'll finally end today's episode, number 16, and thank you for listening. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God willing, we'll be back in 2017. Until then, God bless.
Tradcast. <laughs>